6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. What I thought we'd do tonight is review, first of all, where we were last time, partly because uh, I seem to have not gotten the point across, <laughs> and uh, partly because uh, it'll set the stage for what we want to talk about. Last time we took as our departure Isaiah 19, chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, which makes an allusion that many people, many people believe is a, an allusion to the Great Pyramid at Giza. And uh, we talked about what, some of the reasons why they believe that. And we pointed out that it's a, uh, a pillar and an altar, both on the border and in the midst of Egypt. And basically, the Great Pyramid is in a strange place. It's on the border of Upper and Lower Egypt, and yet it's also in the midst of the, the Lower Egypt Delta. Professor Henry Mitchell in 1868, who was a cartographer for the U.S. Survey, checking on the Suez Canal, happened to notice that, having no biblical background. And, of course, that triggered, not the only thing probably, but it triggered all kinds of people getting fascinated by the possibility that this strange structure in Egypt is somehow a fulfillment of uh, that uh, passage in Isaiah 19. Well, that caused us to then get into a little bit the pyramid, and candidly, no matter how you feel about it, there's no question about the fact that the more you study the Great Pyramid, the more mysterious it becomes. It has all kinds of physical attributes that cause people to uh, be amazed. It, first of all, physically is incredibly well positioned. It's more accurately aligned to True North than the Paris Observatory. It has only three arc seconds of error. The Paris Observatory has six. We're talking about a, a structure that has 13 acres as its base, that has temperature compensating joints at the corners, and that uh, has uh, accuracy of the finished stones of a 50th of an inch. It has passageways uh, cut in it that maintain an accuracy over 350 feet through masonry and stone that have a deviation of less than a quarter of an inch. You have a tough time uh, doing that well today, even with laser drilling. And how they did it is a mystery. No one really has any answers. There's also all kinds of measurements that people have noted that seem to portray a model of the uh, universe, that is, the, the solar system. We have the concave sides that, by taking three different measures, cover the three different days in a year, solar, sidereal, or anomalistic. And people have been baffled by that. They discover that the pyramid is, uh, anticipates several things, that value of pi, many, many times in many different ways. It also is the, uh, the solution to the classical dilemma of squaring the circle. Taking the radius of a circle, that's the height of the pyramid, the pyramid would subtend a square whose perimeter is equal to the circumference. And it all comes about because of a magic angle, 51 degrees, 51 minutes, and 14.3 seconds, which is the angle that pyramid's built at. That angle turns out to be provocative for many other reasons we'll come to. And people have taken the various units and seen it as a model of the Earth and the solar system. There are dimensions to the pyramid that would appear to measure the mean height of the cr crust of the Earth above sea level. It happens to be equal to the height of the pyramid, exactly. 
The depth of the ocean below the pyramid is a, 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 a number that also can be derived. We talked about the golden section, known among architects and so forth, and it's all through the Great Pyramid. So the sophistication of the pyramid is amazing. Then we get to the mystics, who take the passage in Isaiah, in the Hebrew, and add the number of numerical values to that and get 5449. And what makes that number provocative, that happens to be the height of the pyramid and pyramid inches, exactly, and that's kind of provocative. It also is the length of the descending passage in both parts, essentially 5448.7360. Kind of interesting. What does this all lead to? It causes one to get fascinated by, and, one, and many in history being totally obsessed by, the pyramid. The angle of these passages is known as the Christ angle for a lot of weird reasons. The angle up and the angle down is uh, 26 degrees, 18 minutes and 9.7 seconds, which some people have noted is the angle that subtends the path from the pyramid to Bethlehem. And there are numbers in the pyramid which add up to 233.5 miles, the exact distance to Bethlehem. And that causes people to say, whoa, what's going on here? People who have studied the peculiar internal structure of the pyramid, which is not a tomb, it's something else, but no one's quite sure what. And there's a descending passage and a strange antechamber. There's the ascending passage and the grand gallery, and then another passage to what they call the queen's chamber, ancient names. Some other passages into the king's chamber with a strange box that's roughly the, it's the volume of the Ark of the Covenant. And on it goes. And people have seen certain reference lines in this passage, which has led to the basic unit insights, and it also leads to all kinds of attempts to do prophetic dating, because it does seem that several inches measures seem to correlate to key dates, and yet, as people get carried away with all of this, and you'll find things like uh, the Christ angle, and the ascending passage, the birth of Christ, the baptism, and the crucifixion, and on it goes. And there are charts and charts of all shapes and sizes, giving all kinds of very provocative and convincing arguments. And most of them have this basic architecture, that somehow this descending passage into the abyss here is man's descent to death. And yet the number of inches that correlate to uh, the uh, giving of the law of Moses turns out to start the ascending passage. And when you count those inches, it would seem that about the birth of Christ is here and the crucifixion of Christ and uh, his descent presumably up and back. This is usually related to either human life or Israel. This grand gallery is almost always linked to the church in some way. And this somehow some final climax. And all the different authors over the years have all slightly different variations of how they try to make an analogy of this prophetically. However, the proof of the pudding is their ability to prophesy. And Adam Rutherford, for one, is famous for his various charts and diagrams and numbers, predicting, of course, the end of the church age in 1914. Not so you'd notice, huh? <laughs> there are a number of variations of these, and of course, uh, Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses and others have, have in their past been overly enamored with the Great Pyramid. So we talked a little bit about that, and my intention was is to make you aware of some of the mysteries which do raise valid scholastic conjectures, but are inconclusive and tend to be occultic. I'll come back to that. But then we shifted our discussion to uh, the Salisbury Plain in England, this, this interesting thing called Stonehenge. And as a guy who spent 30 years in the computing industry, I got fascinated with this as many, many years ago and did quite a study of it. And it's a fascinating monument. 
about a 320-foot circle surrounded by various holes and stones and what have you, all lined up with a keystone called the heel stone, or it's an ancient word for sunstone. And indeed, everyone's noticed for centuries that the midsummer sunrise always rises directly over the heel stone. Now, of course, there's all kinds of structural things about Stonehenge. It is as mysterious as the pyramid, probably built about the same time, two, 3,000 years ago. Nothing to do with the Druids. They came later and just inherited and, and went on with their foolishness. But uh, <laughs> these things are carefully crafted with mortise and tenon and tongue and groove and crafted elsewhere and brought here 240 miles away. Some of the stones are weighing as much as 50 tons. So how they did it 3000 BC is a tough guess, a tough guess. But what's perhaps more interesting, if you, as you study the architecture of Stonehenge, even though it looks simple and crude, it turns out to betray amazing precision. And there are people will talk about the bluestone horseshoe, the sarsen trilithons, and then uh, the um, sarsen outside, and the, the, the sarsen circle, and the bluestone circle. Two different kinds of stones, some in horseshoes, some in circles. Turns out they're very precisely placed. And um, the question is, what do they mean? And Gerald Hawkins did an interesting thing. He uh, put all this on a computer, ran it against ephemeris, learned all kinds of things. This doesn't begin to tell half of it. But on these trilithons, these huge stones in the center, they line up with sunset and sunrise, moon, moonset and moonrise, and the great central one. It turns out that 12 of the extremes of the sun and 12 of the extremes of the moon at the critical times of year, this thing correlates with. And uh, from this, Gerald Hawkins discovered not only is it an astronomical computer, but it even had the capacity to predict eclipses. And we talked about that last time. And so far, that's in the realm of reasonably uh, sound archaeology or what have you. But then we have the mystics come along, and they uh, notice some other things. Oh, by the way, what, what is provocative is Stonehenge works because the key four station stones that make up the outer circle are at a rectangle. Stonehenge can only occur at one latitude in the northern hemisphere. And Stonehenge happens to be placed within a mile of that very spot, that latitude. The latitude is 51 degrees, 51 minutes, and 14 point, you know, it's the same, it's the pyramid angle. It also turns out that the angle of the heel stone from north is that same angle. In other words, if you take Stonehenge to north, the heel stone is 51 degrees, 51 minutes to the summer solstice. That's exactly the angle that the Great Pyramid is built. So that causes people to stand back and say, wait a minute, not only are there a lot of mysteries about the Great Pyramid, there are a lot of mysteries about Stonehenge. Not only that, two of the station stones, 91 and 93, line up to an azimuth of 118 degrees from true north. And if you follow that on a great circle route, guess where you cross? Great Pyramid points directly to it. It also turns out that one of those angles can predict spring, and if you can predict the full moon rise after spring, you've predicted Passover. If you take the line that does that, it lines up with Jerusalem. So you wonder, wait a minute, what's going on? Now, this leads, of course, to all kinds of provocative conjectures. Who built them? Many scholars believe they're built by the same guy because of all the intricate mathematical similarities a profound knowledge of astronomy being implied by both. So you have theories that Job built the pyramid. You have theories that Seth built the pyramids. You have uh, the most provocative widespread one is that Enoch built it. And that's kind of interesting because that would be before the flood. Some people actually believe the Great Pyramid uh, pre-existed the flood. 
if Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid built about the same time, that's a little awkward because I don't know how Stonehenge would survive the flood. But in any case, those are all conjectures and they all have their various proponents. But then again, we enter the mystics who take the Aubrey Circle, align it with 7,000 years, treat it as some kind of master chronometer, and they notice that all kinds of alignments add up to all kinds of interesting dates. And uh, you'll find books written on this stuff. They notice that Stonehenge will line up, not only does it check with his dates, but those things also line up with the various dates that are conjectured about the Great Pyramid. Again, the mystics jump on the bandwagon and say, gee, they're obviously both built by the same guys. The question is who, and we'll come to some conjecture about that in a minute. Some more recent ones. In any case, you'll actually find diagrams like this in some of the books which have from uh, several thousand B.C. to several thousand A.D. various dates that line up with the birth of Seth, the death of Adam, the birth of Noah, and, and on it goes, including the uh, uh, last possible, Israel's last possible jubilee and the Punic Wars and, and uh, Constantine's conversion and so forth. And those of you that want to buy into this stuff, pay particular attention to 1984 because something big is supposed to happen then. And 2244 is a big year. And uh, watch out for 2730 A.D. Anyway, I hope no one in the room thinks I'm taking this too seriously. Okay, there's two monuments, the Pyramid and Stonehenge, and we, we sort of beat that to death last time. I'm doing this for review just to get us back in that uh, frame of reference and also for those that may have missed last time. That leads then to some uh, issues having what I'll call conjectures. And one of the conjectures that we're faced with is the dilemma of secular science. Secular science, and I'll put science in quotation marks here, is facing a strange dilemma because recent measurements in the last few years, measurements by NASA and others, of various astronomical parameters now demonstrate that the universe is not infinite. It's finite. It also had a beginning. I mean, measurably so. Let's set aside units and those other issues. The main point is uh, cosmologists are now confronted with a dilemma because the Big Bang models that they parametrically built they tried to make it look infinite. Even Einstein admits that he fudged a constant, which is the biggest mistake of his career, because the universe is not infinite, either in time or in size. It's finite in both directions, that is, in terms of time and in terms of size. Conceptually, that gives the cosmologists a huge problem. Pemrose and Hawking and others all now are beginning to uh, talk about the fact that there is a designer. And that's kind of interesting from their frame of reference to come to those kinds of conclusions, just from objective physics. But there's another problem. In 1957, they discovered the DNA code, and now we understand the DNA code, and it's a digital code. And that has staggering implications for the uh, uh, theories of biogenesis, because you can't design a computer uh, with a digital language until you design the language, and then you have to design the computer to implement the language, and you start building those things so they're not only self-correcting, but self-repairing and self-perpetuating, and you have design problems, orders of magnitude beyond our current technology, and there's absolutely no way they can happen by randomness. The point is, suddenly, secular science is a gigantic problem. Biogenesis is out the window. Evolution would be anyway because there's not enough time nor material to make it work, but that's neither here nor there. At this point, uh, with the digital code and the DNA, uh, the whole concept of biogenesis is in a shambles. So science has to reach for some other conjectures. And one of the interesting conjectures may occur, may occur, and you're starting to see it in some of the papers, conjecturing about 
what uh, fell into disrepute years ago with the so-called Eric Van Daniken models, the idea of you know ancient astronauts and all that business. This leads to some interesting questions. As they start pondering this, they come across a couple of rather provocative issues. First of all, if you look at our solar system, it becomes very obvious that there are no habitable planets. Mercury is hot enough to melt lead with no atmosphere. Then we get to um, Venus, which has unbreathable carbon dioxide and some sulfuric acid thrown in with 900 degree Fahrenheit temperatures, and that makes it kind of hard to postulate even a biological system of some kind. So that isn't tenable. If you go outside Earth and Mars to the outer planets, you discover that it's even tougher there. And by the way, even, even Venus has 100 atmospheres of pressure. Air pressure is 100 times what it is here. And the outer planets is even worse, and it's unbreathable. They're crushing atmospheres. And there's no place to stand. They're liquid. You see, that makes it kind of hard to create an you know, environment of some kind. So uh, the outer planets don't make sense. So the question is, okay, if somebody somehow was visiting the uh, solar system, there's two planets that would be their targets of opportunity. The Earth is the, would seem like the hands-down choice because it's got lots of chlorophyll, rolling oceans, very habitable, rich group of elements, and so forth. You can hear Spock advising the ship's captain that we've got a real target here, except there's another problem. You look at Mars, and it's a, a desolate, arid desert that uh, has unbreathable air and the searing sun with no filtering of the ultraviolet destroying what uh, atmosphere there is, and it's a mess. Except it does have one major advantage. It has one-third the gravity. And as the scientists at NASA and elsewhere understand the role of gravity on biological organisms, they also realize that if somehow you did manage a technology to provide intergalactic travel, that you've got a huge problem not only with synthetic gravity as you go, whatever mechanism you want to use, but certainly when you land, if it's a long travel, uh, you've got a gravity problem. Well, Mars has one-third the gravity of the Earth. So scientists are starting to conjecture, and they build their models that, gee, if somebody was going to land from far, they might land at Mars first to start getting adjusted to a gravity, which may be a bigger problem than atmospheres and these other things. Well, that causes them now to start shifting gears, looking once again at a couple of other mysteries. When they look at the two oldest cultures on the planet Earth, they notice they're, they're known as Sumer, or we sometimes call it Mesopotamia after the Greek name. In other words, southern Iraq, if you will, which was regarded the, the cradle of civilization, the Akkadians and so forth. It's interesting that almost all the ancient writers, as well as the current analysts, notice that this the Sumerian culture had no development. The earliest records show them with an existing culture, including representative government, public schools, legal codes, massive public works, gridded cities, mathematics, astronomy, and a written language. And they point out there, was, there wasn't a development. It's as if they had a legacy. And from that point on, history is downhill, in a sense. Now, we as biblical students find that amusing because we've been hammered through, since we were kids with the so-called ascent of man. And now the scientists are saying, well, it redid an ascent. There was a descent rather than ascent. Well, geez, that's funny. That's what Noah was all about. And that's what Moses said in the first place. But in any case, then they shift gears and look at the Egyptian culture, and they find the same thing. The Egyptian culture dates essentially about 3100 B.C. with the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt. Again, knowledge seems to have been developed from our earliest records. Not a development, but rather a legacy. And a handful of scholars, and I won't go through all that again, but it's interesting, they also notice something else. There seems to be some links between Egypt and Sumer. 
the Egypt, Egyptians used a decimal system, but they also used a sexagesimal as a base 60 system for the religious affairs. And that's interesting because that's exactly the system that was at Babylon or Sumer, the Sumerian culture. And that's why we have 60 seconds and a minute and 60 minutes and an hour and all of that. And it's interesting, we're finding evidence in the Egyptian writings that they had a similar mathematics, which is a little unusual. Now, this, of course, leads to a whole other set of conjectures that you don't find the literature because most people are not aware of what I'm about to tell you, and that is there seems to be some evidence, not conclusive, that the planet Mars made a near pass by at more than one occasion on the planet Earth. And when we studied the long day of Joshua, we talked about that, the models and, and why they were formulated by uh, people like the guy that teaches orbital mechanics at Harvard and elsewhere, where they conjecture orbital resonance reasons to, uh, to uh, view some anomalies between the Earth and Mars, which explains the change in the year and all of that business. If those of you that are interested in this, I'll remind you that this is all covered in a separate tape in Signs in the Heavens when we talk about the long day of Joshua. But the one thing about that, those are all conjectures, but what's provocative are the writings of Jonathan Swift. I always get a weird reaction when I'm using Jonathan Swift as an astronomical authority, but let me explain what I mean. We know Jonathan Swift is the author of Gulliver's Travels, and most of us know the story of Gulliver visiting, presumably, the land of the, Lilliput, the Lilliputians, the little people. That was the first voyage of Gulliver. Most of us, as you've read Gulliver's Travels, are probably not aware of the third voyage of Gulliver, where Gulliver is said to visit a land called Laputa, in which the astronomers in Laputa brag that they know about the two moons of Mars, and the astronomers in London don't know anything about it. Well, what makes this interesting is, is that Jonathan Swift published his fantasy, this, this uh, satire, in 1726. The two moons of Mars were discovered in 1877, 151 years later. The two moons of Mars are very difficult to see. They're, the largest one is only eight miles across, and they have an albedo, that is a reflectivity, of only 3%. In other words, they're almost black. They're very hard to see, except with some very excellent optical instruments. In 1877, Asaph Hall, using a brand new telescope at that time in the U.S. Naval Observatory, made astronomical history by discovering the two moons of Mars. The question, of course, raised, is raises, is how did, jo did Jonathan Swift know about the two moons of Mars 150 years earlier? No. He was a friend of John Herschel and some of the other astronomers of his day, and clearly there was no awareness of any moons on Mars in, in astronomical history. Well, then how did Jonathan Swift... Oh, and by the way, the, the, the account in Gulliver's Third Voyage mentions the rotation, Kepler's, Kepler's equations for planetary motion, which were known in those days. But it mentions the rotation, and one of the moons of Mars is counter-rotating. It's the only counter-rotating satellite in our solar system. And yet, that's the way it's mentioned. And some people say, well, it was a lucky guess. Sure. <laughs> what puzzles scholars is, did Jonathan Swift know about the two moons of Mars? And there's no way that that makes sense. So then how did he get in this book? The answer that seems to make sense is that he drew upon what he thought were legends to color his satire. Jonathan Swift was a satirist poking fun at London. It was a political document at the time. It's now regarded as a children's story, like many of these things uh, turn out to be. But the point is, Jonathan Swift apparently drew up on legends that he didn't realize were eyewitness accounts, and that implies that the planet Mars was within 70,000-80,000 miles of the Earth at one time. All kinds of problems with that. Well, how did it impact the moon? That means it's close to the moon. That means it rose from the horizon 50 times the size of the moon. It implies that there were 85-foot land tides. As you go to the phenomenology of such a near-pass by, that is recorded in history.
In fact, there's passages in the Bible that we take figuratively. I saw the mountains melt like wax and so forth. And it may be that though some of those in Habakkuk and elsewhere are uh, from the past by in 701 B.C. that also caused all the calendars on the earth to change. That leads to something else, and that is the name for Mars among the Chaldeans was Baal. And when you read in the Bible about Baal worship, you need to understand they're talking about the planet Mars. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. Speaking of Manasseh, Hezekiah was the king during uh, Isaiah's time, and Hezekiah tore down the idols and reestablished uh, the worship of the living God. But when he passes away, his son was worse than useless, and that's Manasseh. And he tears down all the proper things and reestablishes idols. And in fact, Manasseh is credited by the Talmud as the one that martyred Isaiah. In fact, uh, some extra-biblical records imply that he sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. But in any case, in verse 3 of Second Kings 21, it says, For he built up again, speak of Manasseh, he built up again the high places. By the way, interesting thing, you'll notice throughout the Old Testament that idol worship was always on the high places, right? And God didn't want Israel to put their altars on the high places because they didn't want it to be like the pagan practices. Something else that was on the high places are the groves. Remember, you always read about the groves and the high places. Idol worship. What kind of groves were they? Some of them, Chaldean ones, were phallic symbols. Others may have been the equivalent of Stonehenge, but in wood. There is a wood hinge in Scotland and so forth. I mean, there's, if you get into that, you'll find those. These things. It may have been astronomical. Because let me, let, let's read on in Second Kings 21. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made an idol as did Ahab the king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Interesting. Why would they worship Mars? You and I, if we went out tonight, couldn't, we couldn't point out, most of you could not point out the planet of Mars if your life depended on it. And we're educated in the space age, right? Why do these ancient cultures worship the planet Mars? Answer, it interfered with their lives. Every 106 years, they've been near passed by the earth and caused 85-foot land tides, brought all the walls down, preceded and followed by bolides and meteors, bolide being a meteor that explodes. And there's records of that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.